Welcome to Brendan Avats. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined by Jason Werbelov. And today we have um, a really exciting guest, uh, Martin van Staden. So Martin is based at the Free Market Foundation and is the head of legal and specifically works at the Rule of Law Project. Um, Martin has um, authored a book as well um, on the rule of law, and we're going to be talking about uh, the rule of law in quite a lot of detail tonight. So Martin, can I ask you to start with um, a thought experiment? Yeah, sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me. It's uh, exciting to be here. So, uh, and during this lockdown, so yeah, let's uh, let's discuss the rule of law and uh, specifically how the South African government um, <laughs> has totally failed at it. But yeah, thought experiment. Uh, so, imagine, if you will, uh, fictional realm presided over by a king called Rex, and he decides that he was going to suspend all existing law or precedent, common law or existing legislation that has developed over millennia, um, and he was going to replace this with a new uh, legal system. Uh, he's the Justinian of our time. Um, so he's not a great writer, and he thinks that first he's going to try uh, writing his code, but keeping it to himself, and then adjudicating disputes uh, as being himself the judge. Um, that becomes somewhat of a problem for his citizens who complain and say, but uh, without your law that you've now enacted being published, we cannot really adhere to it. So uh, please publish it. Um, so Rex understands this, this is obvious. And he decides, fair enough, there, here's my code. But then his subjects who are expected to obey the law discover that it is totally incomprehensible to them. Uh, it is written in uh, high Latin and he's presiding over a German Germanic tribe, very problematic, can't work. Uh, and they're like, okay, please make it clearer. We, we can't obey the law if we cannot understand uh, what, it's, what it says. Uh, Rex obliges and he says, fine. Um, Let's try making it clearer over a period of time. And uh, every time you see something that's not clear, I'll enact a new rule. Uh, and so the code gets amended every few days, every few weeks. Uh, and then, of course, another problem arises. People start complaining, saying, what I'm doing now used to be legal. Suddenly it is illegal. And uh, tomorrow it's going to be legal again. We can't keep changing the law like this. Uh, make it clear for us. And make it stay what you thought it should have been and don't keep amending it. Um, fair enough, he says, and the uh, amendments start fading away, as happens in real life. Amendments in any new legal uh, system will uh, uh, become less frequent as the law stabilizes. Um, and then, finally, uh, he has his new code. But people start noticing that they act in accordance with what the code says, but uh, when they do certain things that seem to be allowed, the enforcers of Rex's law uh, decide that it's simply not uh, acceptable to them. Uh, for instance, there is a period where uh, nothing is said about cooked hot food, uh, but suddenly people start getting arrested for buying cooked hot food. Uh, and then afterwards it gets declared illegal. So I think uh, we can all see the problems here, uh, this is from Lon Fuller's book, The Morality of Law, and these were four of the uh, ways to fail to make law 
that Fuller identified. There are four more, um, and these eight shape principles of the rule of law are the, um, I guess, the the principles that um, give one an idea what the rule of law means. Uh, we often call it a, a doctrine or an institution, but really it's a description of a state of affairs, and it describes the opposite of what Rex did in his realm. Uh, so the rule of law requires clarity. It requires publication of the law. Uh, it requires stability within the law, and it requires a uh, a congruence, a consistency between what the law says and how it is enforced on the practical level. Well, Martin, thank you very much for sketching out that dystopian nightmare. I mean, thank goodness in South Africa, we don't have to deal with anything like that at all. I mean, you know, our overlords have been incredibly wise in the way that they prohibited us from eating cooked chickens. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I mean, the constitution is quite clear and I, I feel like I'm one of the only constitutionalists left in this country with the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic uh, raging outside. But uh, Section 1C of the constitution says that the rule of law is supreme uh, in South Africa. And um, if, you have, if you listen to what our politicians say, then you might conclude, yeah, sure. I mean, everyone talks about the rule of law. Uh, every mayor who's been in jail, every mayor who's being uh, investigated for corruption, every member of parliament who's had their hand in a cookie jar will give a, a speech about how important, just how important the rule of law is to, uh, to society and that we must all adhere to the rule of law, so they say. So if you just listen to what they say, then the impression might be created that the rule of law is the status quo in South Africa, but I think that's very doubtful. Yeah, so Martin, you've already alluded in the way you gave the thought experiment that it's it you know it, it's a, it's very much applicable today, uh, COVID South Africa. Um, but of course, Fuller wrote this quite some time before COVID, um, and it's it's meant to be kind of this abstract thought experiment that shows that you need to conform to certain principles. Um, in order for any legal system to be considered just. And in fact, Fuller goes a bit further and says, in order for it to be considered a legal system at all. Um, I wonder if you might uh, go into a few more ways that these, these, four, these four ideas uh, that you mentioned are not being applied in South Africa. So you mentioned that there's frequent changes in King Rex's system, uh, and that's problematic. You mentioned that um, the laws are quite obscure to them, you know, that, that, they sub, that subjects can't really easily understand them uh, and that they're not being um, published regularly enough um, and not being published in a full and complete way. And finally, that there's this incongruence between the way the laws are, uh, you know, uh, uh, laid out in Rex's system, in his code, uh, and then the way they're administered and enacted. I think the South African government has been pretty good at publishing it, uh, the manner in which it does so is not so much. So if you tell a ordinary South African, and to be totally honest with you, if you tell me, uh, go and find the government gazette in which X, Y, or Z has been declared a crime, or in which uh, uh, this item has been declared a uh, essential uh, service, I mean, very few people know what the hell that means. Uh, what is the government gazette and where do you find it? Uh, I myself have no subscription to any government gazette service. Uh, so there are some where you have to pay, which is somewhat problematic given that this is supposed to be the law we're all governed under. It should be very freely and easily accessible uh, 
to um, to South Africa, to everyone go- governed by the law. But then if you do find that gazette after uh, half an hour searching, you'll find something that we lawyers like to call cross-referencing. Uh, in academia, it's, it's probably far easier to cope with. But when you uh, start seeing cross-references between different laws and regulations, between government gazettes, you, you find yourself in a bit of a, a pickle because uh, it, it's, it's quite literally a bottomless pit sometimes. It's cross-reference after cross-reference. You will never find the whole picture of the law. And this is uh, it's common wisdom, I would say, amongst lawyers. It's the first thing they told me when I did my degree is that you won't find a single lawyer in this country who knows, quote-unquote, South African law doesn't exist. There's no lawyer who knows all the law. And most lawyers do not know their own specialized field from um, uh, head to toe. It's, it's impossible because there's just too much of it. So in many ways, publication there undermines itself because there's just so much of it. Uh, there is no point in even publishing it, even though you definitely should. But it's, it, for m- most people, it's, it's meaningless whether it's published or not because it's equally inaccessible for them. So uh, I once, uh, I once sure, had an experience yeah. with this outside of the law. Um, I, I once worked for a company for eight days. I won't mention the name of the company. And I would sit in a meeting. And during the meeting, they would do three things. The first thing they would do is they would compliment each other on what a great job they're doing. The second thing they would do in the meeting is they would mention jargon, lots of jargon. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. The third thing they would do is plan two more meetings. And so meetings would proliferate. And I have... I. When it came to the jargon, I would ask, so what does this term mean, right? And they, would, they had this little booklet of what all the jargon meant and what all the abbreviations meant. And I, and I would start paging through during the meetings to find what these terms meant, but they would cross-refer. And so I would then page to the next one that the first definition of the first piece of jargon referred to, and it would refer to a third and I would quickly mm-hmm. pace through to the third all during the meeting. And, then, and, 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 you know, they're already planning two more meetings while I'm doing this. And, uh, and, I, and I would pace through to the third definition. And, and that would refer to a fourth, which referred to a fifth, which referred back to the first. So it became, it became the circular web of definitions and, you know, planning more and more and more meetings. And I, I've always thought that's such a good, uh, um, it's such a good way of understanding what happens in the law is that these laws cross-refer to each other. And, and in order to discuss that, we have to plan more and more and more hearings and discussions mm-hmm. to the point where it just becomes this, mer- this mess, which is what mm-hmm. King Rex wanted to get out of in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I think uh, your viewers, if they can get their hands on this series, it's called Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister. Uh, it's available in certain ways. I won't get into that. I don't. I doubt it's being sold anywhere. Um, but uh, yeah, it's that's a good example if they want to derive some comedy from it. Uh, it's it's endless jargon, which even the politicians who presumably write the laws simply can't follow, and that just uh, means that the civil servants run the show. And I think that's actually probably the case uh, in most of the, at least the Western world. Um, but yeah, so the the. I guess the the next uh, point that Fuller makes is part of this, and that is the understandability of laws. Now, it's all part of the accessibility of law, which is elusive for the common man. Um, And I would say that the South African government um, certainly has has failed in in this regard as well. 
and I say this as a, a trained uh, jurist who spends most of his time reading jurisprudence law, sometimes you sit with a piece of legislation and you just have absolutely no idea what it is that they're talking about. And uh, if, it, if it's inaccessible to me, it will be inaccessible to the vast majority of people to whom it applies. Uh, not that they'll even know where to read it. They'll ask their lawyers and their lawyers will make something up uh, the best they can. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's, uh, it needs to be understandable and it isn't. Um, uh, I guess a good example, a relatively recent example, I don't have it in front of me, but Mark will know about this, is the definition of hate speech in the 2016 version of the Prevention and Combating of Hate Crimes and Hate Speech Bill, which thankfully now seems to be a thing of the past. But hate speech was defined so broadly. So, so the, the Constitution is quite clear. Not perfectly clear, but it's, it's clear. It says hate speech is the advocacy of hatred that is based on race, religion, gender, or, or uh, ethnicity. Uh, and uh, that constitutes incitement to cause harm. Now, these, these are not particularly clear terms, especially harm, but most people intuitively, if you say it's give this definition to them, they'll be like, okay, I have a broad understanding of what that means. The hate speech bill went into something like, um, if you have the intention, uh, uh, yeah, the intention to uh, ridicule or to co uh, bring into con into contempt someone based on then it's a long list of 18 grounds uh, and uh, insult is worked in there somewhere and it's, it's a confusing mess but essentially what that definition came down to if you cut through it was that if you insult someone based on anything uh, you are guilty of hate speech um, that's a, a problematic piece of legislation because it's 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 so uh, difficult to understand, and you find this across the length and breadth of our um, of our legislation. And with the COVID thing, of course, as I mentioned earlier, cooked hot food. What, what does this mean? What does uh, cooked hot food mean? C can it be hot and uh, not cooked? Is is that allowed? Can it be uh, cooked but not necessarily hot? So if you cook uh, something but you throw it in the fridge for half an hour, is that now allowed, etc.? These things were never clarified. So uh, I think most businesses uh, simply said, okay, anything that has to do with heat and food, just stop. Uh, and uh, just to be safe. And I mean, some businesses, I think like Spur, have also said they're not going to open uh, their online sales now because they're there's just such a lack of clarity for them about what they are allowed and not allowed to do. So they're just going to wait until the lockdown stops entirely. So, I mean, this is an obvious necessary part of the rule of law. It needs to be understandable. And I would say it needs to be understandable to the very lowest common denominator. So the most illiterate person, reason, uh, most illiterate non-vegetative person in South Africa needs to be able to understand the law as it applies to them. Um, I'm not saying this is easy. It's certainly not a not an easy task. But what it does come down to, and as a libertarian, this gives me gives me much pleasure, is that that necessarily means we need to cut back on lawmaking radically. Uh, there needs to be fewer laws, and there need to be shorter laws, not the 250 page uh, acts of parliament, 
um, and the less there is, uh, the easier it is going to be to understand. Um, now, I mean, the next few points uh, build on these. I think all these principles of the rule of law are all interlinked. But obviously, amending legislation continuously, uh, introducing new changes, uh, it has the same effect. The, the law stops being understandable. And we saw this with, again, with COVID. Um, I mean, since the uh, lockdown was declared in mid-March, I think there have been like five or six iterations of re regulations and amendments. Uh, and again, this means nothing to the man on the street because he doesn't even know where to get the amendments per se, unless it's linked in a press article. Um, but yeah, if, if it keeps changing, then you're making it difficult for the lawyers who are expected to keep government in line uh, to follow what's going on. And then obviously the final point, um, I think people intuitively understand this, that there needs to be consistency between what the law says and how it is enforced um, by, by the police and by enforcers on the ground. And I think many people during the COVID uh, pandemic have experienced just this problem where um, the, uh, there's an example of um, Koza, uh, I think he was drinking a beer in his uh, in his front yard. No regulation prohibits that. He was on private property, drinking alcohol. Alcohol sales sales have been prohibited, but um, not drinking it in your house from your existing stock. He was killed uh, by the by soldiers. So I mean that's one example of uh, a total inconsistency between what is allowed and what is not allowed, and what the police and uh, the military think is 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 proper um there are many examples of this and i think this is probably one of the things that are most litigated in south africa and the world so i want to return to something you touched on uh, a bit earlier which is the distinction between natural law and positivism so my understanding briefly is that natural lawyers um, think that law must be just and that if you have uh, something which purports to be a law that is evil it is not a law so the argument is that laws during apartheid, for example, in the Immorality Act or the Group Areas Act, which forbid um, people of different races from being in certain areas or um, you know, intermarrying, the, the argument from the natural lawyer is those are not laws because they're unjust. The positivist says something different. The positivist says um, a law really is that which is found in the sources of our law. So if it went through a particular procedure, in other words, Parliament promulgated the law. Um, they had the particular powers in place. They made them public. They abided by, you know, Fuller's uh, inner morality. Um, then it is a law, and it is a separate question whether it is a just law. So they think that morality and law are distinct. So you know, a positivist can quite easily talk about an evil law. They can say the laws that were passed in apartheid were evil, um, but they were definitely. They were definitely. To my mind. Uh, I mean, do you sit in a particular camp in this regard? Are you, do you see yourself as a positivist or a natural lawyer? So I see myself in the natural rights tradition. There is a slight distinction between natural law and natural rights, but natural rights is, I guess, a subgroup of natural law. Not to say that I don't think positivists haven't made positive contributions to, to jurisprudence. Uh, I think Ronald Dworkin uh, is considered a positivist, and I think he's made some pretty interesting uh, contributions to uh, jurisprudence that might actually 
uh, in many ways solve this problem about justice and injustice in the law. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in the natural rights camp and natural rights basically just uh, means that there are certain preconditions um, that the law must adhere to, to qualify as law. And these specific preconditions are that the law must act as a protector of the so-called natural rights of all individuals. Uh, and the moment that it does not protect uh, the natural rights of all individuals, or it does something other than protect the rights of uh, individuals, then it's it's not law. Um, so yeah, that's that is the the camp I find myself in. Yeah. Yeah. So the difficulty I've always had with saying it's not law is when the police officer comes to your house and he says, you know, here is the rule against um, having sex with black men, uh, and I've caught you in bed with a black man. Um, Here's the, here's the rule. We take you to the judge. The judge opens up the rule book. He applies the penalty of five years in terms of the rule book. They throw you in a prison. You know, if you just say, well, what you've done is, is not, not legal at all. And I said, but we took you through a legal system. It was written in the law. You know, it just seems like a sort of strange response to my mind. I get that you say, hold on a second. I have a natural right to love those that I want to love um, and to, you know, to express my, my freedoms in a way that doesn't harm anyone else. Yeah, I buy that. And that makes the law wrong. Uh, and you might say that the law is invading your natural rights. I just don't buy that it's not a law. Um, but those sort of, you know, semantic arguments might be only interesting to philosophers of law. No, no, no. I, I think the, the semantic argument, it's, it's quite important because uh, Giovanni Sartori, I've been reading his, some of his jurisprudence, he points out that the, the Roman law, the Roman word, the Latin word for law is use, uh, I or J-U-S, now, that is the root word of what we know today as justice and also judge. Uh, so uh, that, that creates I, at least a, an implication that uh, the law and justice need to be one. Uh, and that, to me, leads to the natural rights position. And that judges uh, actually should be at the forefront of saying, yes, this act of parliament does say this, but uh, to hell with that. It's unjust, and I refuse to uh, regard that as law. Um, uh, I mean, the uh, that I think that was the the sorry the use commune as well uh, common law. Uh, it, 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 in Latin, it's use commune, so it's basically the common law, but common justice. Uh, that is what it comes down to: the the law and justice need to be one and the same. And in your example. A law enforcer should be accountable to the law. He should be an enforcer of the law and he should refuse to enforce a prohibition on, um, on interracial uh, marriage and interracial intercourse. But moreover, Parliament must never have enacted that so-called law in the first place. And that enacting it uh, would have been a... Uh, it would have been ultra-virus. It's not within the... Uh, the uh, the legitimate powers of that institution. Um, now, of course, the Constitution does give it that power, and that that brings us to, I guess, the ideal theory versus the practical reality uh, area. And I think that that's that's definitely fair enough. It would be irresponsible of you as an advocate when someone comes to you and says, uh, "The police have arrested me for this, and I want to." challenge it for you just to say no but they they don't have the power to do that and uh, uh, parliament shouldn't have done that in the first place so don't worry about it that that would be totally irresponsible of you you need to help them and the only way for you to help them in a way that the courts will recognize is to go by uh, the the 
legislation that has been enacted. So that is unfortunately the lot of uh, natural lawyers in, in the present day reality. We have to live with that, but we have to, um, and this is what the judges and, and lawyers did during apartheid, the point that I was starting to make earlier, but then interrupted myself. Uh, they uh, adopted what I summarized to be the in favorum libertatis approach, uh, interpretation in favor of liberty. So any any rule of law, of legislation, of common law, of regulations that seems uh, somewhat unclear, it's not totally explicit about what this means, you immediately have to argue that it means uh, uh, it, it needs to be interpreted in favor of the freedom of the, the victim or the target or the subject of that law. And I think that's a very in, uh, innovative and uh, necessary tool in the arsenal of natural rights uh, jurists um, during apartheid and today, but it's not, it's not really employed today. I, I don't think that much, uh, but I think it's necessary. So when you go to court, you have to say there is an ambiguity here. And because there is an ambiguity, the judge needs to interpret it strictly and in favor of, of liberty. And I think that's a gradual way uh, to move away from, uh, to, to at least bring the law as it stands closer to justice, at least until a time when libertarians control parliament or whatever and there's a or a libertarian revolution and we get to press the reset button like rex <laughs> so i i'm i'm just a lowly philosopher here uh, uh, in a discussion between two two lawyers um so there's there's a bunch of there's there's a, there's a lot here that that that's not as clear to me as it is to the two of you um i wanted to ask some clarifying questions around some of the terms that you use so and and then I want to present an object an objection once you've clarified. So, the one of the terms you used was you said you are one of the last remaining constitutionalists. So I, I want to know what a constitutionalist is and why we think that's a good thing to be. Okay, so uh, there are I, I think there are two ways uh, two things that you're going to associate with the word constitutionalist. I mostly identify with both of them more so with the first than with the latter. Okay, but the first is uh, you believe in constitutionalism, uh, and the second is you believe in the constitution. Uh, the constitutionalism, constitutionalist, is someone who regards the, um, who subscribes to the worldview that the powers of the state must be subject to limitation. Uh, the powers and the extent, the scope of state power must be subject to limitation or by law. That is constitutionalism. Uh, and that uh, broadly, the consequence of that is that, again, every, every power of the state must be construed narrowly, etc. And that uh, where there's room for limitation, you must regard it as being present. That's constitutionalism. Uh, constitutional, uh, constitutionalist, in the sense of they believe in our constitution, is someone who just takes the provisions of our constitution seriously, re reads it as a whole, doesn't uh, nitpick, etc. Um, and uh, when I said that I feel like one of the only ones left, I think I mean it in both senses, but particularly in the second sense as well, because with uh, COVID-19, a lot of people have been scared, and I mean, that's totally justifiable, to the extent that they have said, you can't throw the constitution at the virus, so please, government, just save us all. Um, that to me is, is problematic because I think that constitutionalism was never conceived of in, 
as being only applicable to ideal situations. Quite, quite the contrary. The whole point of constitutionalism was to control the powers of the state, particularly in those circumstances where it is popular for the state or it is demanded of the state by its constituency to engage in, in uh, uh, liberal, I guess, exercises of its power. That is why there is such a, a, an idea as constitutionalism, because governments were just doing whatever the king wanted and at some point doing whatever so-called the people wanted. And liberals came together and said, oh, hang on a second, this, this can't work. It's, it's total chaos. People's rights are being violated, left, right, and center. And simply saying that, well, the majority wants this is insufficient. Uh, we want the subject government to, I guess, uh, in uh, what's the word, temporal, intemporal powers that just stretch across uh, all, of uh, all of space and time. Uh, it's meant for the ages. It doesn't matter what circumstances you find yourself in as a society or a government, you have to stick with what the constitution says. And uh, to bring it home to South Africa, our constitution makes provision for situations just like the one we currently find ourselves in. The government is empowered to uh, engage in the limitation of rights, um, specifically limitation, not suspension. Uh, it needs to do something, uh, go through a process to suspend our rights, the process that it has not followed yet. But the constitution does say, yeah, if things get a bit tough, you can limit rights. And I fear that our government has not adhered to that formula. I think that, and I, I say this, uh, uh, um, noting that the courts don't seem to have a problem with that. A recent case also, uh, uh, I think by a, a high court judge, didn't even do the Section 36 analysis and basically just said it complies with Section 36, so the limitation on rights is perfectly okay. So, I mean, that's, that's a problem. And that uh, not adhering to this um, formula is problematic because... Everyone in society, uh, specifically investors, businesses, the more intelligent laymen organize their, their affairs on, on the assumption that the government is going to adhere to the constitutional framework. That, that's part of the purpose of law is to create certainty. And the moment government just starts doing what it thinks is best in the moment based on, I guess, extra legal considerations, then all of that is up in the air. Now, it, it may make sense morally for government to do what it is doing. Uh, lots of people seem to be okay with the government throwing constitutional caution to the wind with uh, COVID-19. That's like, fair enough. People are scared. And maybe, just maybe, government is doing the right thing uh, in a very, um, geez, I don't know, uh, spiritual sense. But in a legal sense, it, it simply cannot be doing the right thing. And uh, outside of the legal framework, we're not dealing with government anymore because the government only acts as it does because of the constitution. And the moment it steps outside of those bounds, it, it, it transforms itself into something else. And with that, I think, goes a large part, at least, of our uh, duty to obey what the government asks us. Our insistence always, as government must adhere to the constitution, then we'll obey, obey its demands. If it doesn't, then we won't. That's I, broadly, I guess, the social contract. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a dilemma for you, 
Okay, so this is something philosophers love to do. So the dilemma gives you two options and both options come with a problem. Okay, so here's a dilemma. Is it the case that the constitution is right and correct and good purely because it is the constitution? Or is it right and correct and good because it conforms with some bigger or higher value? Uh, maybe some like natural law, some natural right. It conforms to those natural rights. So now, I'm, since I've asked the question, I'm, before you answer, I'm going to set up the problem with each possibility, right? So if you think that the law is good and right, or rather the constitution is good and right purely because it is the constitution, well, then it seems like it's arbitrary. In other words, it could have been anything, and because it would be the constitution, it would be good and right. But that seems weird, right? We want to say that the constitution is good because it's not just the constitution, but because it, it applies to some higher value. Okay. On the other hand, if you go that route and you say it, it's because it applies to some higher value, then it seems like the constitution isn't actually the thing we're interested in. What we're interested in is that higher value that it's conforming with. So this is um, a, a parallel problem with the problem of, of the goodness of God. So it's uh, Plato talked about the Euthyphro problem. Um, so you, the Euthyphro problem uh, asks the question, is it right because God commands it or does God command it because it is right? And you have this problem of arbitrariness if it's right purely because God commands it. And you have this other problem that if it's right because um, God conforms with some sort of independent moral value, well, then you don't need God to get at what's good. You can just go straight to the moral value. And I think there's a parallel problem here for constitutionalists because, you know, we want to know, is the constitution right in some arbitrary way or is it because it conforms with some greater value, in which case let's just scrap the constitution and go straight to that value? Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's my, my answer to that is as a libertarian and a jurist at the same time, it will be the latter. Uh, I'm very much wedded to natural rights and uh, I would prefer natural rights over the constitution any day of the week. Uh, but I, I guess it, it comes back to the practical problem, uh, and that is that the Constitution is what we have. Uh, if, if I felt that the time was ripe, for instance, to say, okay, it's, we can now just say, let's just say natural rights or new law of South Africa to hell with everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm game for that. I'm definitely all I'm for I'm very that. surprised by that answer and very pleased to hear it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I think after Mark uh, chats, I'm, I'm sure Mark's going to have plenty to say now, but I'm, I'm very curious to hear you cash out what those natural rights should be. Sure. But let me, let me get Mark. I, I think he's chomping at the bit to, to <laughs> ask some questions. Yeah, so we're seeing some tensions come out here. If we think about you know, our original problems with King Rex, you know, King Rex says, well, let's just get rid of all this messy law stuff. I know what's right. You know, it's innate. It's, we all know what's right. Come on, this is apply it. And we don't need these fancy statutes and constitutions. I'll just do it. Um, and so <laughs> the problem is that there seem to be different accounts of, uh, of morality. You know, if you get um, utilitarians and Kantians in a room, they're going to tell you very different things about what is right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you get in uh, natural lawyers even, you know, and you sort of ask them to write down what these uh, fundamental rights are, they give you different lists, you know. Um, so there seems to be a problem with saying, 
well, we don't need these laws, we can just rely on morality um, when that's a disputed notion in and of itself. Um, I think there's something about saying that, well, we probably want our laws to aspire towards justice um, and that the way that we can critique our laws is if they are unjust. And we have repealed laws because our notions of justice have changed. So we know that slavery was legal at one point and it was abolished on the grounds that it was deemed immoral. Um, and there was a moral shift as well. You know, For a long period of time, people felt that there was nothing immoral about slavery and then notions shifted. And there might be some fact of the matter. So if you're a moral realist, you think, well, there was always one correct answer, which is that slavery was wrong. Um, and that people's shift in perspective on that, you know, um, didn't change the fact of the moral question. Mm -hmm. But what I'm getting at is that there's this tension in your account on the one hand of saying, well, let's just bypass the law. Um, and on the other hand, you know, in other words, saying, well, sh shouldn't judges just sort of, you know, use their, their uh, common sense morality to adjudicate? On the other hand, saying, well, it's quite important that we have these systematized laws in place, which people are able to know in advance. I mean, I'm quite wary of, you know, having a matter before a judge who says, well, the law may say that, but I don't care. You know, my personal morality says the following, and I'm going to decide completely differently. I, I, yeah, I, I think I should uh, add a proviso to, to what I mean by what I uh, said there. So I always make the distinction between the theory and the practicality. I, I, know, I don't want it to seem like a cop-out, but for a libertarian who is also very much immersed in, in, in jurisprudence and in law, it's, it's very relevant for me to keep my sanity. Uh, so uh, in practice, you, you simply you can't do uh, what Rex did. You cannot, for the same reasons, it, it causes total chaos and it will probably cause a total collapse in society uh, because of the uncertainty that comes with that. So if I had the power to somehow a coup or whatever, I wouldn't just uh, move it out of the way because my regime will be incredibly short-lived if I do that. Uh, it, it, I totally agree with you. There must be a far more gradual um, approach. Uh, on, on the point of which, um, whose account of natural rights, I, yes, I, that, that is a difficult one. I, I'll just say you may have to go with the libertarian one because I have the guns and that's what we're going to do. Um, but we're, we're, we will do it uh, gradually. And I, I think one of the first things that I would uh, um, do in pursuit of that is to reinstate common law as as the basically the common law of the country. Common law means that it's the basic law, the general law of the society. That's really what it is anymore because we have this rule that legislation always trumps common law, and that that's always that's never really sat well with me. I would say that let be we we're not just going to accept that legislation trumps common law anymore. We're going to assume that the common law, which built up mostly in the context of individual cases between individual people with specific problems and adjudicated by a judge knowing all the facts of the case, we're going to restore the respect for that because that is most in line with, at least my account, of natural rights uh, because it's, it's the scalpel rather than the sledgehammer and it doesn't really affect third parties that much in the way that legislation does, so it doesn't infringe on liberty and property rights that much. Uh, so that's why I would prefer the common law. That's not to say I will suspend the constitution or anything like that, but there needs to be that, that gradual move back, or not back because we've never really been there, but towards uh, a situation where the law 
and natural rights are in perfect lockstep. I don't know if that's a, an absolutely elusive thing, but that's something we must always be headed towards. And that's not something I think anyone is really headed towards right now. Um, and that is why I think uh, my point was more than yes, I would have, there would be a course change. And my master's thesis is specifically about the course change that's necessary in South African law specifically, and that is back towards what libertarians would say is the exclusive function of law, and that is to recognize and protect liberty and property, uh, and it achieves this by avoiding conflict, um, by creating certainty, and move away from social engineering, moving away from welfare, uh, all these other things that have been lobbed onto law relatively recently, if we're being honest. It's not something that's always been associated with law. Uh, and we just need to dial back what we've been doing over the last few hundred years. So I'd like to touch on another topic. So there's this other school of jurisprudence called American legal realism, which is the idea that um, ultimately what matters is what the particular views are of the judge who, who hears your case. So it's often said, you know, what the judge had for breakfast is going to make the biggest uh, impact on your matter, not the law itself. And the idea is that judges grow up with a set of biases. So they are not, uh, you know, perfect supercomputers crunching the law. You know, they come with, you know, uh, a worldview, which they then impose on litigants. So some judges, let's say, which are more uh, care about care about equality are going to output certain ju judgments some which uh, care about freedom are going to go another way and you know as we've talked about thus far the nature of language as such is that it is ambiguous um, mm -hmm. and so it can never spell out all the cases and there are going to be situations where the law creates this uncertainty and that's where that judicial bias can slide in very neatly because we say, well, we're not quite sure how to resolve this. It could go one way or the other. And really what's doing the work is that personal prejudice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of those things where there's a, sh a schism in libertarianism. Uh, I, I often speak as a libertarian, so forgive me if I keep coming back to libertarianism. Um, and that is that, a lot of libertarians, mostly associated with anarchism, anarcho-capitalism, say that this whole idea of the rule of law is totally nonsense. It's, it's all futile because at the end of the day, you can find, for every situation, you can find at least two legal rules that can apply there, and these rules will be the exact opposite. Now, that's basically what legal realism and later uh, critical legal studies concluded, and uh, I think that's, that's broadly correct. What I don't agree on is that it's futile. Um, because the judge, yes, it depends on what the judge believes, and he's a product of his upbringing and of his time. And as a libertarian, I would say that then we need to make sure that the judges we get are of the proper stock, that they, are, they come out of that culture. Uh, the Dennis Cohen, a uh, well-known South African jurist from the 1960s, wrote a book uh, specifically in the apartheid context, and he said, uh, the freedom, uh, the, the book is, uh, I think it's, uh, I have it right here behind me, uh, The Foundations of Freedom. Uh, so he wrote, uh, and I mean, this is something that should be obvious, that you can write the best constitution in the world, the most liberal constitution in the world that spells out 
your natural rights exactly like libertarians would want them. If you don't have a constitutional culture in your society, it's, it's totally pointless uh, because that, uh, at, at worst, people just won't accept your constitution. They'll just overthrow you. Um, and, at, and at best, it's exactly the situation where opinionated judges are obviously going to impose their own views. But then I would say, look at the United States. There have been cases, certainly, <laughs> where Jim Crow and um, various uh, brutal forms of state oppression have been upheld as completely consistent with the Constitution. But I think if you take a broad view, you'll find that their judges are far more immersed in the natural rights thinking. Uh, they refer to it far more in their judgments. Uh, South African judges don't do any such thing. They are our current judges are positivists of the highest order, even though they spend half of their time rallying against positivism, and they do exactly what uh, uh, Jason referred to as arbitrary, and that is that they look at the Constitution and say this is right because it is the Constitution. When that very same person has just criticised apartheid law because it was upheld just because it was said to be law. So they're engaging in exactly the same type of thinking. Whereas American judges, I don't think, uh, I, I'm generalizing here, please. I, obviously, that's not totally the case. But uh, generally, American judges would talk about what Madison wrote in his Federalist Papers, what John Locke wrote in his two treaties, uh, treatises of government, uh, what various uh, liberal thinkers, which is the tradition of that legal community. Uh, I mentioned Ronald Dworkin earlier. He says that he's a positivist. He talks about how when you get to these cases where there isn't a clear-cut legal answer and the judge needs to exercise a discretion, that is done based on the legal tradition of the community. A libertarian would argue there's only one legal tradition in the public law sense, as there is only one legal tradition all across the board, many various private law traditions. Um, but then you, you go back to those principles, broad principles, uh, the uh, inviolability of contract must be respected, the uh, individual liberty must re be respected, and you derive your legal rules from that. Absolutely, you're not going to find a situation where it's totally certain. And I debate this with my anarchist colleagues every day. Um, they are not happy with this situation at all. It's, um, it's they regard it as completely arbitrary. And I, I I mean, it's difficult to fault that. There is, there is arbitrariness involved. But uh, for me, it's just looking at how it's played out since constitutionalism has become, a, I guess, a staple of human society and human governance. I think the sheer arbitrariness that have been exerted by governors on the governed has reduced. I think that constitutions have had the effect of bringing about some certainty and I think that the more you inculcate the, uh, the necessary culture of constitutionalism, the more clear you get in your, in your legislative drafting and specifically in your constitutional drafting, the closer you get to not being arbitrary or to being totally reasonable. But I don't think that it's possible to achieve that point of total, complete, 100% clarity. Uh, one of my colleagues suggests we should computerize the law Completely, judges should be computers, AI, because that's the only way that you'll find the certainty. I, that, that thought scares me terribly, and uh, I, I would stick with human judges, but with human judges uh, and human governors more broadly, I think we should accept there will always be some measure of 
discretion and some measure of arbitrary discretion. Uh, I think we should just work at reducing that as much as possible. And I, I guess as a libertarian, that needs to be uh, reduced in favor of this core function of law, which is to protect liberty and property and not dictate what is right or wrong, except to that very, very small extent, which provides the basis for everyone to decide for themselves what is right or wrong. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the direction in which law should be developed. And uh, that's, that's the point uh, where I think we will find uh, some acceptable level of certainty if, if we can reduce the law right back to that very small purview, at least public law. So Martin, I want to ask I want you one ask final one question, final um, and it's it's a thought experiment, an existing thought experiment, um, and uh, it's based on a movie called Judge Dredd. Okay, um, but it's Judge Dredd souped up with some extra philosophy in the background. Okay, so I'll go into Judge Dredd in a moment. But um, you've mentioned libertarianism uh, throughout this discussion. Um, I take it that libertarianism is the view that um, the state is not um, allowed or should not uh, intervene in people's liberty insofar as they are not undermining other people's liberty. So um, the state can't stop me from doing anything unless the thing that I'm going to do is going to undermine someone else from doing what they need to do. Um, okay, so, so I want to I for a moment put aside libertarianism and introduce utilitarianism. Okay, so utilitarianism is a moral view, whereas libertarianism is about the legitimacy of what the state can do. Um, so I want to put aside political legitimacy and the law for a moment and offer an alternative. So the alternative is utilitarianism plus judge dread. Okay, so utilitarianism is the view that an action is right insofar as it benefits society as a whole or maximizes utility, right? And uh, it looks for any given action what are the benefits um, and the losses involved in everyone's happiness or suffering that might be affected by this action? And it looks at the range of actions that I could have performed and says, which one has the maximum benefit? And that's the one I should perform. Right. Okay. So that's a bit of jargon. But now let's, let's apply to the thought experiment, right? So Judge Dredd is a, is, a, is a computerized machine, but let's just assume he's a computer, right? So he's this android that walks around. And he, you, he comes across a, a brawl in the street, right? And party A says, this is what happened. And party B says, this is what happened. And Judge Dredd, he's a utilitarian calculator, right? He just inputs all of, all of you know, he listens to everything that's going on. And maybe each side has, a, has a, an advocate like Mark who stands up and argues for each side. And, and he computes everything and he says, boom, I've worked out from a utilitarian perspective, I have calculated what the, the correct uh, adjudication is in this matter, and here's the answer, right? So you said earlier that you're quite terrified of a, computer, a computerized system, but maybe that's because it's a computerized system of laws. Maybe what we need is a computer, computerized system of a utilitarian sort that replaces everything, right? So there's, there's no more humans involved. Um, there are only the parties involved, but not the judge. Um, and utilitarianism just takes over. And why, why should we do this? Well, because remember, we said what really matters at the end of the day is not the constitution for its own sake, but because it, it complies with some kind of higher natural law. And let's just call that higher natural law utilitarianism and let utilitarianism run rife, let it take over, and let it be computerized to remove any kind of um, what the judge ate that 
that morning for breakfast being a problem um, and let, yeah, let, let, let the dice roll. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think society will come to a complete stop the moment that uh, <laughs> I, I, I personally would be terrified. I would curl up in a little ball in the corner of my uh, apartment. I wouldn't do anything because uh, Judge Dredd might just decide that what I decided to do is not uh, to the benefit of, of society and he'll shoot me on the spot. So I just, that is my objection to, to a utilitarian approach, whereas... I would argue in a libertarian approach there's at least somewhat more certainty in that it's it's a bit, I guess, intuitively clearer to anyone when they violated someone's property rights. Some libertarians take this way too far. If you touch someone's grass on their lawn, you should be shot. I don't know. It's uh, stuff like that. There's no uh, uh, mitigating, I guess, uh, <laughs> forces to them. But I be definitely believe in some mitigating forces. I think that the intuition of people is an incredibly powerful force. And uh, I think most people intuitively just know, I have now violated someone's property rights. Uh, I have now violated someone's liberty. I, I think criminals know when they've done wrong, even if there isn't a law that says that necessarily that this is, this is wrong. And I think a libertarian legal system is, it would be somewhat clear in that respect. Not that I'm saying leave it all to common law. I think things should be written down. That's certainly a, a big part of it. But yeah, with, with the utilitarian approach, um, I guess I'll ask who programs the judge. That's always going to be a relevant, a relevant question. Is it a socialist? Is it a libertarian? If a libertarian program... That's a utilitarian. It's a utilitarian. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, geez. No. But, uh, <laughs> People have other values other than, than that, I, I imagine. But yeah, that's that would be my question, and um, uh, I, I would I would imagine that most things would stop happening other than small barter. And uh, I think society will be set back millennia because people just wouldn't wouldn't know what they can and cannot do on the day because uh, it, it would be up to the discretion of of Judge Dredd. And I think that. I think that's something other than law, uh, because I think the law has always been associated with this idea of bringing about certainty. I mean, if we talk about laws of physics, uh, we're referring specifically to these rules that are immutable and they're always there. Gravity, it's, at least on Earth, you will always fall if you jump off a building. Uh, that's, that's at least the theme we're trying to convey when we invoke this word of law. Uh, it's something that that's certain you you know it, um, and I think that if, if you uh, uh, adopt a totally utilitarian approach, uh, you I don't think you can call it law. Maybe that is a justifiable um, system of governance. Maybe maybe it will work for some people, but I, I don't think I, I I don't think you can you can talk about law in that respect anymore. Not not based on it being unjust, but just based on it being totally whimsical insofar as a computer can have whims <laughs> well martin thank you very much for joining us today it's been a, a thoroughly delightful conversation we've uh, managed to squeeze in some quite juicy thought experiments i like the idea of uh computerized judge right. dread saying that he is the law uh, and enforcing some sort of <laughs> system even if uh, the subjects are unable to do the calculations and know how to adjudicate their behavior in advance uh, I can imagine a sort of uh, Kantian judge dread um, who applies laws very strictly. Um, 
he says, I am the cunt. Um, and uh, <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have violated the categorical imperative. <laughs> and it will be used against you. <laughs> but we will respect your dignity as persons. Yes, yeah, yeah. Although I kind of thought that putting people to death respected their dignity under certain circumstances. <laughs> Only under certain circumstances, yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Thank you both. Uh, it was a fantastic discussion. And thank you for joining us, Martin. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, we should have more of these discussions. I think since the end of apartheid, these discussions have stopped in South Africa about law and natural law and jurisprudence. And yeah, I really appreciate this and I, I hope there's more of this. Well, one day when I, when I create my judge dread, we're going to have to have another discussion. <laughs> <laughs>